Isn't it exciting, again, to be able to assemble for the purpose that we each have this afternoon? I'm reminded of that text in the 7th verse of Psalm 89 that still tells us that God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about Him. The thought of reverencing God and adoring Him and directing our worship, of course, with proper attitude and spirit to Him, it is truly a way to set our week in its proper focus and course, and we're so thankful, no doubt, that God has allowed us to assemble for that purpose this afternoon. It might be well to make a brief announcement, if I might, at the outset of the lesson this evening. As you know, of course, our gospel meeting is now less than two weeks away. It begins, again, two weeks from this very day on the Sunday morning hour. Brother Edward Anderson will be with us. He'll be speaking at the Bible study hour and then the, the two worship services on Sunday. A dinner on the ground will follow that morning service, so we're always able to look forward, of course, to opportunities like that one. And then, of course, the services each evening at 7 o'clock. So please keep that in your prayers. Pray earnestly for it. Let's be inviting others to come and be with us, especially those who are so much in need of responding to the gospel. Along that same line, we know there are many other gospel meetings, of course, taking place too. One of them is at the Flint Creek Church of Christ there in Jackson County. And Denise and I are going to try to make it to that one this evening. So right after the services, we'll be making our way on outward. It's not that we're trying to avoid anything, but we're going to make our way to try to make it to that by the time it starts tonight. Sanctification and holiness. As you can see on the wall to my left, we're going to turn our attention to those topics this evening, appreciating some of the features that the Word of God has to share with us about both of them. In particular, on this slide, you may notice that they are rather oft-heard themes that frequently appear both in writing, in conversation, in discussion. Many, in fact, are individuals who have spoken at length about the nature of what does it mean to be sanctified. There are times that there are whole books and articles and subjects relating to them. I think tonight we'll find that in many instances, God's Word is rather direct when it comes to these subjects. I hope tonight you and I will be reminded of the greatness of the Word of God and what it says about you and me being sanctified individuals, how that's accomplished, and the details that go along with it. As we begin to think about the lesson, may I suggest let's do it as follows. Let's define some terms first, seeking to appreciate what is the definition of a few items, and following that, we're going to ask, what's the significance of them for you and for me? I believe we shall discover that sanctif sanctification and holiness are vital as the Word of God sets them forth and things for which you and I, if we are to be saved, if we are to go to heaven, if we are to be those whom God would find satisfied and pleasing to Him, we must be both sanctified and holy. Let's begin that discussion then as follows. As I mentioned, some terminology. It might be of interest to appreciate the large, large number of times that certain words that relate to these things are found in the Bible. For example, the English word sanctify, as you can well tell, occurs over 140 times in the King James Bible. Now that again counts both Old and New Testament and you likely can think of a number of passages in which words like that appear and we shall see several of them over the course of our study this evening. But to be more specific and more to the point, 
I would ask you to notice the particular Hebrew word. That in the Old Testament is so often translated as sanctify. It occurs an astounding 681 times only in the Old Testament. Doesn't that highlight, among other things, the significance even under the law of Moses that was to be understood relative to whatever it means to be sanctified? This word occurs so very often. Many of those occurrences are found in books like Deuteronomy, Numbers, Leviticus, the Chronicles and the Psalms all share a large, large number of occurrences. In particular, you might note the definition. So if this word occurs so often, what does it mean? That word literally means to make holy, to consecrate, or to say it differently, to hallow or to set apart. I have simply called to your attention a very, very small number of passages in which those Hebrew words are found. In Leviticus, the 8th chapter, verses 12 and 30, we find God as He expressly made observation of the Levites and the fact they were to be sanctified in the relation of their service to Him. There was a process whereby that was accomplished. Moses, you may remember, sprinkled some oil upon them. They had garments that they were supposed to wear. And in light of all of it, these individuals were thus said to be sanctified. That only, of course, reminds us of Deuteronomy 32.51 in that amazing song composed by Moses. He was a songwriter, wasn't he? We often don't think of Moses as a songwriter, but yet in that chapter we find him setting forth a marvelous song the children of Israel sang. And in it was extolled the greatness of sanctification and the fact that God had set apart Israel. As you can see in those Old Testament appreciations, I'm sure they only beg the question about the New Testament. As we turn the page from Malachi to Matthew... And we now ask, what about the 27 New Testament books? Is sanctification a topic of them? The answer is yes. The Greek word sanctify occurs 28 times in that New Testament. I would ask you to note its definition. That word literally means to make holy, to consecrate, and one of my most favorite, I guess, ways of saying it, to set apart for sacred service. We find instances then in the New Testament in which an entity or an individual was set aside for a particular service or purpose of God. Interestingly enough, as you look at those occurrences, think quickly about these two. In the 17th chapter of John, on that occasion again when the Master prayed in Gethsemane on the night before He was crucified... Jesus, on that occasion, as He prayed for those apostles at that moment in particular, said, Sanctify them through Thy truth. Thy word is truth. And Jesus prayed that these apostles would be set apart for sacred service, that they would, in fact, remain in a consecrated holy state so that they could carry out the duty and work that God had given them. Look at another example in 2 Timothy 2.21. As Paul wrote that little letter to Timothy, in it, it, he reminded Timothy very critically about this idea. I'd ask you to note the language. If a man purge himself of these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. You may notice the movement through that verse. If a person purges himself from certain things... 
He then becomes a vessel of honor. And Paul went on to say he is sanctified and meet for the master's use. Now that phrase, meet for the master's use, reminds you and me so carefully. This individual now occupies a position whereby he is able to fulfill or carry out the duties that God would have him to do. He's meet or appropriate now for the master's use. I'm sure there isn't a person in this audience that would in fact desire to not be meet for the master's use. And yet that means every one of us need to be sanctified. Every one of us need to quickly and amazingly have that, that consideration of us. Let's go on further beyond that. We also noticed another part to the title relates to holiness. And that word holy occurs an astounding 611 times in the King James Bible. That's a large number of occurrences, isn't it? 611. Of that number, you can really appreciate many of them relate to the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. That probably isn't too surprising to any of us. But of course, that leaves many occurrences that have to do with individuals who themselves were holy. One more time, I would ask you to notice that in the New Testament, that word seems to carry a very special usage. Please note this idea with me if you would. The word holy relates to the quality that allows individuals or things to be brought into the presence of God. That seems to be the overwhelming thrust of these terms. Again, if something is holy, it has the quality and the characteristic whereby it can be brought into the very presence of God. That's remarkable, isn't it? For we will remember in the days of the Old Testament especially, not everything could enter into God's presence. Even of the Levites, only one, the, holy, the, the high priest himself was able to enter that most holy place once a year. Surely in light of all those things, why don't we close that slide with this interesting observation. A couple of times in the Old Testament especially, you and I remember that individuals were reminded of the presence in which they found themselves. Moses, take off your shoes. The ground on which you stand is holy ground. Now, it wasn't holy because of where it was located. On the back skirts of Midian, the outskirts, if you please, of the Arabian Peninsula, that's not what made it holy. It was holy because God was in the burning bush, that the very presence of God was at hand, and Moses needed to appreciate that fact. The ground on which you stand, Moses, is holy ground. Later, Joshua was told something similar in Joshua 5.15. It was on that occasion, Joshua, of course, now as he was about to lead the children of Israel into battle against Jericho in the opening verses of chapter 6, here there was an individual who told him the ground's holy. Again, the presence of God was to be seen and victory would be given to Joshua and Israel not because of the place where it took place, but because God was with them. That's how the walls of Jericho fell. Maybe those things remind us then that some more matters of sanctification could be beneficial for all of us. So if it's so vital for you and me to be sanctified, let's ask, so how do I become sanctified and what about you? What do you and I need to do in order to become sanctified individuals? Well, let us see and develop it like this. I thought it useful at this point to make an observation. Among the resources that I consulted and considered in an attempt to put together this lesson, 
I found that the overwhelming sense that many in our world today give to sanctification is that it is an exceedingly long and progressive matter, perhaps statable like this. It seems as though many teach that you can start the process of being sanctified at a given moment, but it might take years to complete it. And in fact, you may never complete it in this life. That again seems to be the critical key in the matter that attaches to it, at least in so many particular articles and even those documents that many denominations, in fact, set forth. Our interest is not what man may teach about this. We'd like to know what does the Bible have to say about it. And what does it teach about individuals becoming sanctified? Let's develop it using a number of verses, and let's just let the Word of God speak for itself. I've listed them one by one, and I'll ask that you consider them with me. First of all, sanctification. We've noticed this passage already, that by the very feature of what the Master pointed out, it comes in relationship to the truth. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You and I might remember that these first century individuals, these that were the apostles, they in fact had a special measure of the Holy Spirit. They were individuals who had the capability of working miracles and a number of other things so vital for the first century church. And yet in that passage, the Lord didn't make mention of any of that. He prayed that they might be sanctified by the Word. He prayed that those individuals, those apostles, would be committed, dedicated, and devoted to it, and that through it, they in fact could be the sanctified individuals. In that sense, we then see... This matter of sanctification highlighted by virtue of the Word, isn't it? In addition to that, notice what follows it. When Paul was given the opportunity to speak and to preach there in Acts 26, it was the case, wasn't it, in verse number 18 of that chapter, that he directly, as he spoke to that audience before whom he spoke, he identified they were sanctified by faith. Sanctification comes as a consequence of faith. It doesn't come in any other means. It doesn't come based on emotion. It does not come based on a feeling. It comes as an ironclad consequence of faithfulness. Might we say in light of that, this is beginning to look rather different than what many in our world might proclaim relative to sanctification. Let's go to the next one. In addition to those two, Paul rather directly and also rather abruptly pointed out to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, that their redemption, their salvation, their justification, and their sanctification were only by way of Christ. There was no other thoroughfare or means whereby they could appreciate and enjoy sanctification. We understand so easily that hasn't changed in the slightest. It is still only through Jesus that any individual could be sanctified. Keep in mind again what that definition was. To be sanctified is to be, in fact, set apart, to make may holy, to be consecrated. You'll notice only through Jesus can that take place. It does, again, remind us, doesn't it, that many who may think that they can be motivated by a particular idea or feeling or emotion, and they may consider themselves sanctified. But if it isn't based on the truth and faith of the Lord, 
then it isn't so. The next point, in fact, will allow us to identify that even more critically. I think this is a, as an, and it is an overwhelming consideration. In the opening verse, verses 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul addressed the church in Corinth. Keep in mind, this was a congregation. You and I can, in fact, think of the Pippin Church of Christ. That was the Corinth Church of Christ. As Paul addressed them, he identified them in four explicit ways. They were the church. They were those that were sanctified. They were those that were called saints. And they were those that were, of course, committed to the work of the Lord. Now, you'll notice Paul identified those grammatically by linking them one to the other. One was equivalent to the second one. So, to be in the church was to be sanctified. To be sanctified, in fact, was to be devoted to the Master's cause. And all of them was equivalent to being a saint. I realize there are many in our world, especially the Roman Catholic persuasion, who think that sainthood is an especial thing to be vouchsafed or granted to someone after they're dead. That wasn't true of the church in Corinth. Here was people as much alive as you and I are, and yet Paul said you're saints, and as such you've been sanctified. You probably can see the linkage between the words sanctify and saint. We find then that those who were members of the body of Christ in Corinth were sanctified people. What a marvelous blessing. What an incredible and enlightening teaching. That doctrine of sanctification brings us to the last two. Paul said something else in that book. I would invite you to please note with care with me the middle section of chapter 6. Paul had just addressed that congregation and made note of what their past history had been. Isn't it true that some of them had been fornicators and some of them had been guilty of various and sundry other things such as drunkenness, revilers. Others had been guilty of homosexuality and other sexual perversions and sins. But in the midst of that, Paul was quick to say that though you once were, you are not now because he said you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. Now these individuals to whom Paul spoke, they hadn't always been perfect. They had been guilty of the sins he had just listed, but he amazingly said, you were washed of these things, and now you're sanctified as a result of that. I would ask you to notice Paul linked being washed with being sanctified. To be washed made them sanctified. They were washed from those sins. They were washed from those activities and the guilt coming from those lifestyles. Remarkable, isn't it? No wonder the bottom statement is this one. As Paul wrote the Ephesian letter, he equated cleansing with sanctification. And again, he identified it as the church. That beautiful church that the Master Jesus Himself purchased with His own blood, Paul identified in that passage that He in fact set it forth without spot or blemish or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish or without spot. And in the verse just prior to that, as He identified and described that church, the church of our Lord, He said He sanctified it and cleansed it with the washing of water by the Word. There's our word again. He sanctified it. How, Paul? As he cleansed it with the washing of water by the word. Again, there's a reference to washing. 
and the marvelous matter in which the church herself is a washed body. No wonder as we think then about being sanctified, we are now reaching perhaps just a few final comments. As the Bible has been allowed to speak to it, we allow the Hebrew letter writer now to join in the chorus, if you please, of this description. As the Hebrew writer goes on to identify it, he says it like this. In chapter 10, verses 10 and 29, he spoke about the sanctification made available through the body and the blood of Christ. Now we've already learned that sanctification comes only as a result of Christ, and it comes when we're, when we're washed. At this point, you'll notice it also is linked critically to the blood of Jesus. No wonder we're about to reach a conclusion as to the moment at which sanctification takes place. As we develop it, might we notice, there's a beautiful description of those who are thus sanctified. They are described as complete or perfect as the King James Version states it. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse number 7, he said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Pausing at that point long enough to note we're sanctified through the body of Christ. He went on to develop it. But every priest standing daily and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But this man, when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. From henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. You and I as sanctified individuals, the text says, Jesus has perfected that sacrifice forever and allows you and I to be sanctified. Thus, to note that it relates to washing. It relates to cleansing. It correlates to being a member of the church. It identifies further the attribute of linking to the blood and the body of Christ. No wonder we then come to notice this. Baptism is the critical element used in the New Testament to help you and me understand the moment at which sanctification takes place. Sanctification doesn't occur at the moment of belief. It doesn't occur at the moment of repentance. It doesn't occur at the moment of confession. But something monumental happens at the moment of baptism. In fact, several things. We realize one is made a member of the body of Christ, Acts 2.47, one's sins are washed away, Acts 22.16. One is saved, 1 Peter 3.21. And one is also sanctified. At that moment, he is set apart for the Master's use. He is made free from the shackles of sin. The guilt that has gone with those sins are no longer attached to that individual. He or she is sanctified. He or she is a saint. Isn't it amazing to think of you and me as saints? And yet, that's the term Paul used to identify those in Corinth. Let's, in fact, look at some of these verses. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27, as Paul addressed the congregation there again in the midst of that book, he had just identified some of the weaknesses of the law of Moses. He highlighted before them the fact that old law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Galatians 3.24 And then, and then, 
right after that he says, Ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. These individuals to whom Paul spoke, they had put on Christ. How so? In baptism. And as such, they had thus affiliated, joined themselves to the nature of the body of Christ. And as, of course, the Lord added them to it, that allowed them to appreciate all the spiritual blessings to be found in Jesus. Ephesians 1 verse 3. The notion of being a member of that body challenges us with this host of verses. I would ask you to reflect on these with me as you think about this matter of being sanctified. Remember, we learned earlier its definition. Let's see its embodiment in verses like these. In Colossians 2 verses 11 and 12, Paul identified the operation of God that takes place in baptism. It is an incredible surgery, isn't it? He excises all of the guilt that goes with sin, makes the person completely forgiven of it, and stands that person in a newness of life. That's a remarkable occurrence. All of that occurs, if you please, at that moment of baptism. But go one chapter later, in chapter 3 of Colossians, beginning in verse 1, Paul very powerfully asserted, If you have been risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. He asserted then, if you've been risen with Christ, you have a different motivation, a different mindset, a different objective and goal in life. Doesn't that sound a great deal like the process that attaches to the result of their sanctification? You have been prepared and meet for the Master's use. What about Galatians 2.20? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me for the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul said, I'm no longer myself in that regard. It's Christ living in me. He's a dedicated individual to the service of the Christ. Surely in light of that, I would hasten you to consider that Revelation 1 verse 5. We learned earlier the critical association of washing to sanctification, and yet there... John, the revelator, could say that Jesus washed us from our sins in His blood. The moment we're baptized, it truly is an eternally changing moment where we have entered that body of Christ because Christ added us to it. That special moment in which we're forgiven of all the sins of our life no matter what or how many there may have been. Maybe that leads us to those last few verses. That text in Romans chapter 6, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, so shall we also be in the likeness of His resurrection. That's Romans 6, verses 1 through 5. We shall be in the likeness of His resurrection if we have been planted together with Him. That planting, Paul said, takes place when we're buried with Him in baptism. At that moment, 
an individual previously clouded in sin comes out sanctified. The great blood of Christ has been attained. It has been approached. Notice this verse in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The newness of life attached to what happens when a person is sanctified at baptism. Doesn't it prompt us maybe to look at those last few thoughts on that slide? Isn't it significant that the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 12.14 that without sanctification no man shall see the Lord. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it, in light of baptism. For without baptism, didn't Jesus say in Mark 16, 16, if a person doesn't believe and is baptized, can't be saved. The notion of that baptism and its appearance in light of the requirement to see the Lord hastens us to ask just a very few final questions about sanctification. The first being, it would surely be expected that if one is sanctified, again, meet for the master's use now, that his life or her life should reflect that change that took place at baptism. That life should then be a continual and devoted matter, touching the greatness of what Jesus has done for that person. And isn't that the uniform teaching of the New Testament? To your attention, I would call that text in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. Paul said it so eloquently. He identified that which is the overarching motivation for you and for me. He said, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Paul said, Because you and I were dead in sin, Jesus paying the price for us, we now live to him. And my life, and so too should yours, be a constant reflection of the sanctified character that God would have it to have. It thus becomes a very sad thing when a person claiming to be a Christian, his or her life doesn't reflect that sainthood that God bequeathed upon him or her. That his life doesn't reflect the purity and the characteristic integrity that God demands of it. No wonder as you come to the bottom of that slide, that then directly means there are certain things as sanctified individuals that you and I must abstain from. We mustn't allow them any part in our life. None. Ephesians 5 verses 3 and following, Paul describes the fact that let it not even be named once among the saints. There are things you and I must never do. He even lists a few of them, covetousness, idolatry, uncleanness. And you and I know he quickly makes mention of things like drunkenness or alcoholic beverages as well. Those have no part in the life of a person who's sanctified. That doctrine of sanctification is very rich, isn't it? I suppose it's perhaps the time to make a correspondence between sanctification on the one hand and what that leads to in terms of holiness on the other. We define holiness at the outset of the lesson tonight. Holiness is again being set apart for sacred service. Isn't it true that when you and I were baptized, we at that moment made a volunteer statement to become a part of the very kingdom of God, and Christ added us to the church, and we were set apart at that moment 
for service in the Master's kingdom. May we always live faithfully till death to that confession we made. May we strive in all ways to hold high the banner of Jesus Christ, following Him thoroughly, completely, and entirely. At this point, these conclusive thoughts at the top of that slide. We noted earlier that there are many in our world who seemingly relate sanctification through a, to a long, progressive process. But the New Testament doesn't identify it that way. I've tried to summarize it in words like that. There's no doubt that there is growth in the Christian life. All of us seek to grow. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. 2 Peter 3.18 But to speak of growth is not the same as to speak of being sanctified. You and I were sanctified the moment we were baptized. And as we, in fact, enjoy the benefit from that moment onward of sanctification, we strive to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we have been called. Ephesians 4, verses 2 and 3. Surely, in light of all of that, notice the wonderful correspondence. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, verse 1. Tonight, what about you and me? If you've been baptized, you were sanctified at some point in life. Have you lived in a convicted way relative to that sanctification? Or have you lost sight of what it meant to be a saint? Have you lost sight of what it meant to be an individual that was meet for the Master's use? Right now, might we ask each of us of ourselves... Am I meet for the Master's use? Can God use me as the current instrument which I am? Or is my life a very poor replica of what He would have it to be? If it's the latter and if that's due to sins known publicly, why not this very night come and ask for the prayers of faithful individuals here so that you can again be reinstated to a position of being meet for the Master's use? You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, I would just ask you to appreciate sanctification is a very rich idea. It's a matter that's very beautiful. Are you sanctified? If you've never been baptized, then you are not. It doesn't matter what some in the world may wish you to understand. But as we've said before, if you have been baptized, have you been faithful? Though you were sanctified once, maybe you're not living holily at this point. I'd close the lesson with that reminder from the book of Titus in chapter 2. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness of worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly. Are you living soberly, righteously, and godly? Am I? If, we're, if we aren't, why not make a change tonight? And if we could help you, this song of encouragement has been chosen. If you need to come, why not do it now while together we stand and while we sing?